Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 32. Today, we're going to continue on the theme of childhood obesity that began last week with the former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Sandra Hassink. And we're going to shift over to a different perspective of the childhood obesity and adult weight gain issue in the United States from the perspective of Dr. David Katz. Dr. Katz is a MD-MPH, which stands for Medical Doctor and Master's in Public Health. So he comes at this from a particular preventative medicine and lifestyle medicine perspective, but he also has an incredible expertise in nutrition. Dr. Katz earned his bachelor's from Dartmouth College in 1984 before pursuing his medical degree from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in NITEE. He then completed his residency and master's in public health simultaneously at the Yale School of Medicine and Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Katz is the founder and former director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, which he began in 1998 before passing on the torch in 2019. He is the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, president and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative, and founder and CEO of Diet ID, Inc. Dr. Katz is a recipient of numerous awards for teaching, writing, and contributions to public health. Dr. Katz was a 2019 James Beard Foundation Award nominee in health journalism and has been widely supported nominee for the position of U.S. Surgeon General. He has received three honorary doctorates. Dr. Katz has served as a nutrition columnist for O, The Oprah Magazine, an on-air contributor for ABC News and Good Morning America, and with appearances on most major news programs and contributions to most major magazines and leading newspapers, including op-eds in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. His most recent book, How to Eat, co-authored with Mark Bittman, is a 2021 IACP Awards finalist and is worth your time. I have had the pleasure of hearing him speak many times over the years, and he is an amazing orator, and I am blessed to have this hour with him. So we're going to get right into it. This is part two of of the obesity epidemic discussion, and we're going to talk today with Dr. David Katz. Well, hello, David, and welcome to the show today. I'm so excited to have you on and share all of your wisdom to the audience at hand. Welcome. Very kind, Chris. Thanks. Great to be with you. So today we're going to dive deep into the world of uh, everything related to excess weight in humans. And I want to start with a piece you wrote, which I think was so well written in Liebert Pub called Feeding Our Kids and Kidding Ourselves. And there you wrote, human offspring come into this world much like the young of all other mammals. And like all others, within minutes of our arrival, we are hungry. Food figures prominently in our lives ever after. But never is it more important than in childhood, when it serves as the literal construction material of those growing bodies and brains. The initial food choice for human babies should be self-evident, as it is for all other baby mammals, the milk of their mothers. The provision of that milk is among the defining characteristics of the mammalian class. It is part of what makes us what we are. I couldn't agree with you more. Later on in the piece, I wanted to add this, because I thought this was also critical. Food, after all, is the only one and only construction material for the growing bodies and developing brains of our children. 
Who among us would sanction building anything we care about and hope to see last house, car, computer from junk? How then do we tolerate building the bodies of our children and grandchildren from such dubious material? So David, let's start from there. What is going on in this country? You know, when it comes to the state of children's health in the U.S. as it relates to excess weight, obesity, you know, the disease trends that follow it. Just take it from there. Yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there. And it, it's interesting, Chris, when when you hear read back to you something you wrote years ago, you're listening to it kind of like anybody else would. They, Damn, that's good. I wish I said that. <laughs> turns, out, t- turns out I did. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of good stuff there and, and it's powerful. And, I, you know, I think in many ways it all leads back to the big question. And I routinely ask this from the podium, especially when my audience is filled with parents and grandparents, where is the outrage? You know, essentially we are mortgaging the future health of our children to fatten corporate coffers. And where is the outrage? It, it hides in plain sight. Uh, we've had disclosures from Pulitzer Prize winners like Michael Moss that we're basically living on willfully addictive junk food. You know, it's not just junk that's accidentally addictive. It's junk that is engineered to be addictive by people who get paid bonuses when they achieve that. And they're playing with the highest tech toys using functional MRI machines to study the human brain, the appetite center, its reaction to these massively manipulated formulations that masquerade as food. So it's a colossal outrage and, you know, it it extends to all elements of the population. It affects adults and children alike. But I think the outrage deserves to be most acutely concentrated in defense of children, which is something that, you know, it's a great unifying element of the human family. We rally to the defense of children. I, I, I recently watched a new movie, Ron Howard movie, 13 Lives, about this uh, soccer team in Thailand that gets trapped in a flooded cave. It's a great movie, really well done, so I definitely recommend it. But to me, the most beautiful element was in the rescue of these kids. And most of us remember this playing out in the news. So th- this movie basically just fills in the details we didn't know. But it's a global community that comes together at the mouth of this cave to to execute this elaborate, complicated, dangerous, daring, unbelievable rescue. And there is no diversity of culture or color or or concern. It's just humans, one extended family desperately trying to save these kids. So it's it's this incredible diversity, but it just all disappears because everybody's in it together. And frankly, that's how we tend to be when the well-being of children is at stake, unless we're brainwashed. And in the case of food, we are simply brainwashed. It's been so badly broken for so long that we are immune to it. There is no outrage. Uh, you know, we, we see commercials routinely for kids' breakfast cereals with glow-in-the-dark marshmallows, and everybody's okay with that. If you took that and fed it to a baby animal at the zoo, you'd probably get arrested. You'd certainly be fine. You know, this would be vandalism. And, and, and this would probably violate some clause of the ASPCA. I mean, you just can't do that. You can't feed a healthy animal junk. It, you know, it, you're, you're poisoning it. We do it to our own children. And we do it blithely. We do it blindly. We do it in a cultural blind spot. Everybody is okay with it. 
it's bizarre. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, having cultural norms arrayed against this would make a difference. You know, we, we, we support one another in doing the right thing. Everybody knows you have to be vigilant with children around the pool's edge. And most parents are doing it with their own kids. But if you happen to look away from it, some other parent probably has their eyes on the prize for you. Everybody knows about this. Everybody knows you keep children and dangerous things like sharp objects apart and on and on it goes, right? Well, you know, the single most dangerous thing in our culture for our kids is junk where food ought to be. Studies show that more than two thirds of the calories in the diet of the average American child is what would be widely recognized as junk in the place of food. And this translates to a massive problem with obesity, risk for type two diabetes, fatty infiltration of the liver. Uh, we're, we're actually seeing liver failure for the first time in every younger children because of fatty infiltration, early risk for heart disease, and, and on and on it goes, it reverberates to every aspect of health for the simple reason, as I wrote those years ago, that food literally is the construction material for the growing body of the child. For adults, we are turning over hundreds of millions of cells every day. We're replacing the enzymes we use up. We're replacing the hormones we use up. We're replacing the neurotransmitters we use up. So it, it's almost equally important for us to have a high quality diet, not just as the fuel for this extraordinary machine that is our body, but for the construction material we are using as adults to refurbish it every day. But it's so vivid in the case of a child. You watch that, you know, that, that young boy or girl grow and you ask yourself, okay, they're this much taller this time this year than last year. What is the difference made up of? Well, the only place that came from, that substance, it came from what they put into their bodies. It came from food. And the idea of building that, you know, the, these incremental elements of, of children we love out of junk really is simply unconscionable. And yet it hides in plain sight. So, you know, at every opportunity, both in the peer reviewed literature and when I write for the general public and when, when I rant like I'm doing now or, or at a podium, I try to rant in a, in, a, in a relatively contained manner, but I'm ranting just the same. I, I ask, where is the outrage? It is unconscionable to be feeding our children junk, to be growing their bodies out of junk, to be counting on the promise of vitality and longevity for them when we are nourishing them with junk that would be, uh, you know, a, a illegal to feed to any species other than our own. Yeah. And, and David, I, I think your point is very well taken. The moral outrage around swimming disasters, drownings is obvious because it's cataclysmic in the moment. Right. Food is death by a thousand cuts and people for some reason don't see it. The, the, the reality of watching a child's body weight balloon during the pandemic, it just still baffles me that people aren't seeing it. And so we're not putting two and two together despite the reality that it is. And then you take into account, like you're saying, the cartoon advertising, the Happy Meal starts and all of a sudden the Happy Meal normalizes. This is what children eat. It's no longer parents going, well, this is a snack once in a blue moon, which is what it was when I was in the 70s growing up. Right. You know, parents be like, oh, yeah, you can have a little bit of that. But you know what? You, you rode your bike five miles to and back to get that food. Now it's this is what kids will eat. I have parents tell me in clinic all the time. Well, my child will eat nothing but uh, chicken nuggets, hot dogs, burgers, fries. I'm like, wow, did you ever think about what could be the downstream risk of these foods. So let's go there a little bit, because I think for parents to understand why they need to make a drastic change in their diet, 
why are we seeing liver issues? Why are we seeing this adiposity-driven inflammation? There's, there's no one thing wrong, whether we're talking about the diets of, of children in America and, and sadly much of the world because we've effectively exported a lot of these, these maladies and their causes, uh, or we're talking about uh, the diets of adults. There's no one thing wrong. Uh, again, I, I, I've used the expression, we have junk masquerading as food. And you know wh whether we define junk as ultra-processed food using the NOVA classification developed by Carlos Montero and others, or we simply acknowledge that anything made with all sorts of ingredients that are unidentifiable from any place in nature is likely to be junk. If it, if it isn't a vegetable, a fruit, a whole grain, a bean, a lentil, a nut, a seed, or some kind of identifiable animal food, there's a good chance it's junk. Whether we talk about that or we talk about the component uh, elements that are problematic, such as massive excess of added sugar, massive excess of added sodium, massive excess of a whole variety of food chemicals, the, the ills of which are diverse and in some cases unknown, but we learn more about them all the time. Excesses of all the wrong kinds of fat until fairly recently trans fat, thankfully gone now, but saturated fat, inadequacies of fiber, magnesium, potassium, calcium, omega-3 fat, all the good stuff. So just a, a tremendous across the board imbalance. And again, you know, we, we've already noted that food is the fuel that runs every aspect of the remarkable machine that is the human body. It runs your cardiovascular system. It runs your central nervous system. It runs your immune system. It runs your gastrointestinal system. On and on it goes. And it feeds the microbiome. And I think these days everybody's heard it doesn't just take a village to raise a human being. It takes a village to be a human being. We have this massive village within this, this living ecosystem that is a critical part of us that actually contributes more total DNA to a single human organism than the human does. Uh, so it's really quite an extraordinary symbiosis. We, we really are a symbiotic colony in a sense. And we know more and more about how diet quality and, and diet composition affects the microbiome and how that in turn reverberates to affect immune function in particular, but really every other aspect of, of who and what we are. So we can't overstate the importance of being in balance. And I think that begs the question, you know, what, what constitutes balance? And at the very start of this, Chris, when you were reading from those passages I wrote some years back in, in Childhood Obesity, I was talking about humans and other animals. That's a pretty good place to start. I, I think there's a unique homo sapien arrogance that makes us think about nature and us as if we are something totally separate. Of course, we're not. Uh, you know, we, we've used the, the great capacity of the human mind to differentiate ourselves in a lot of ways, but we are part of this world, part of nature, and we are a kind of animal. And a good place to start with nutrition is to think, well, what is this kind of animal adapted to eat? And, and that varies very widely. You know, wildebeest need to eat grass and lions need to eat wildebeest. Now, they're very, very different requirements. Well, we know a lot about what we need. You know, we, we're definitely toward the herbivore end of the spectrum, but we're clearly not strict herbivores. We're omnivores with choices. But we have a vast array of evidence from evolutionary biology, from paleoanthropology, and from modern science telling us we thrive on, as Michael Pollan put it, diets of real food, mostly plants. Now, and, and whether you want that to be exclusively plants or not is a choice you can make for various reasons, and we can get into that. But 
a lot of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, plain water when thirsty, you're apt to thrive, you know, relatively less of everything else. And the reason for that is not moral. And, and, and this is really an important point. You know, it's not you should eat this way because it's virtuous to eat this way. No, you should eat this way for the same reason that dolphins should eat fish and giraffes should eat leaves. This is what your body is adapted to thrive on. This is what will give you healthy organ systems. This is what will give you a healthy microbiome. This is what will give you the greatest shot at a bounty of years in life and a bounty of life in years, which is arguably the greatest gift we can bequeath to our children, right? The chance to live long and prosper with vitality. We can pay that forward. And, and you know, th these issues that come up in families, like the one you just mentioned, where, you know, I, I've got a kid who won't eat anything but glow-in-the-dark marshmallows for breakfast and bologna for lunch. Well, <laughs> that must be what you're feeding your child, right? I mean, if, if your family doesn't eat that way, then children don't acclimate to eat that way. I, I have five grown children. So, you know, it's not like my, my wife and I haven't been to this rodeo. Right. And, you know, we were committed to health as a family value, if you will. Uh, and we were committed to high quality nutrition. We weren't the food police. We, my wife's a, a, an inveterate foodie. She's French, grew up in Southern France. So, you know, food's gotta be good. We, we both share that conviction, but it has to be good for you because otherwise the price you pay for it is just too high. And, and if I may digress for just a second, just to give people a reality check there, health, I think, and, and this may sound odd at first, but, but let it, let it settle. <laughs> health is for fun. Healthy people have more fun. I mean, you know, I, I think all too often, one of the reasons there's resistance, you know, you should eat well, you should exercise. It, it should, should, should. It's kind of all at the end of a wagging finger, right? I mean, there's right. some, some professional admonishing you. No, nonsense. I mean, first of all, you're the boss of you. And, and you're the boss of your kids. I mean, and, you know, I'm not the boss of you. I, I can tell you what I know, but you have to decide what you want to do. But the reason for all this, you, you, you really are much more likely to have a better life if you are vital. It's just that, I mean, you can do more of what you like to do. You can do it for longer. You feel better doing it. You actually want to do more stuff. I mean, life is better. Healthy people have more fun. It's true for kids. It's true for adults. So, so if ultimately health is in the service of quality of life, you could almost make the case, you know, health is in the service of pleasure. You have more pleasure in your life if you're healthy. But we also derive pleasure from eating stuff that tastes good. So there's a reconciliation there, right? And, and you know, one of the things you want to do is love food that loves you back. And that's been basically the philosophy in our household that, that you know, there's a balance to strike. We're, we're not going to be the food police. We're, we're not going to expunge pleasure from eating it's too big a part of life but but there's a balance to strike where you derive pleasure from being healthy and vital and you derive pleasure from good food and you use truly good food in the service of good health and it's it's the quintessential win-win and the final thing to say there and and this is relevant to the, you know the kids you say will only eat glow in the dark marshmallows and bologna taste buds are adaptable little fellas they learn to love the foods they're with. So if you, you know, keep them in the company of junk and bathe them in copious amounts of sugar, salt, and food chemicals all the time, they acclimate to that, expect it, and come to prefer it. But thankfully, it's not terribly difficult to A, either never acclimate to that, that would be the best choice, but B, even if you already have, to reverse engineer it. I, I've called that process taste bud rehab. That's something else I've written about many times. 
but just incrementally start trading up your food choices, dialing down your exposure to added sugar, dialing down your exposure to added salt, and you get more and more sensitive to those things and you prefer less and less. And this has been studied many, many times, and I've experienced innumerable times with my patients over the years. And in as little as a few months, you can do a 180 because you've systematically changed all these choices in your diet, but it's no longer arduous. It's no longer a chore because you're actually preferring less sugar. You're preferring less salt. You're preferring the, the native flavors of real foods. And one of the many virtues of that ultimate switch from highly processed junk to whole wholesome foods in some sensible assembly is real food fills you up on fewer calories. And so you've mentioned weight a couple of times, Chris, both with regard to kids and just in general. And, and I think, you know, the, the critical issue for people to think about here is you do not need to spend your life wrestling with the choice of I can either be satisfied and heavier than I want to be, or I can be lean, but constantly hungry and, and grouchy, hangry. <laughs> it's not true. It's only true if you're eating junk because junk is designed to overstimulate the appetite center and make you need more calories to feel full than you need to be lean. When you eat real food among the many, many virtues there, it fills you up on many fewer calories. And, and by the way, that's the only weight control tactic I've ever used. And I'm pushing 60 and I weigh about what I weighed when I graduated high school. I've never counted calories, but I, I've always eaten an extremely high quality diet of real foods. And I eat till I'm full and I stop. And you know, I gain weight as easily as anybody else, but I just don't because that system really works. And everybody has access to that. And kids have access to that if parents walk the walk. We, we, we can't just talk the talk. We have to do this with our kids. It, now, I, I really think the basic cultural unit of society is the family. Families have culture, and I think health should be a family value, and that, that's a cornerstone of a cultural revolution. Yeah, and I think to take that a little bit further, so we think about body happiness, you know, we talk about weight, whether it's too skinny, too big, whatever, that's all relevant to disease, right? So clearly if a, a, a person is too lean, if you're female, for example, the body will shut down your menstrual cycle. Therefore, you cannot produce a child because the system is set up to only work when it is capable of doing the function it's asked to do, i.e. have a baby, therefore breastfeed. So that is a state of body habitus that I would consider dysfunctional or disease-based. We normalize that for quite a while in young females who are models. And I think that was a very dysfunctional way of trying to get people to think being super skinny is okay. The flip side to this reality now we're seeing play out as the opposite. Now we have this excess of calories from my childhood years in the 1970s until now, body weight has gone up precipitously. And again, there's no shame, there's no judgment being placed here. This is just a reality of structure of a human frame. If the body weight was not associated with any secondary side effects, nobody would care. It would be no big deal. It would be just we'd adjust um, clothing sizes, cars, whatever we needed to to accommodate the body size. But you know very clearly, as well as many of the uh, you know authors talking about obesity, it's not that simple. And so, if we're normalizing weight by making anyone who discusses weight shameful, i.e. what happened in COVID pandemic in England, where they set up a commission to handle obesity and it was roundly hit, and hit by the media, we are really in a, in, a, in a major struggle with society when we don't have the ability to say to people, honestly, 
you know, as a pediatrician, I walk into every room and if I see a child who's not eating healthy, I comment almost every time and I tell them, I am not judging you. I am here trying to teach like I would if I was a soccer coach and telling you how to kick the ball. So let's segue here again. If we know that body habitus is associated with disease risk, how do we go about this on a micro level and a macro level to help people understand this risk? Because I had Rick Johnson on and we talked about his book, Nature Wants to Be Fat, and how clearly we know the genes, the uricase mutation, all these other genes are driving fat deposition in the liver, the periphery, which then is immunologically active, which then causes our risks of cancer, heart disease, as you previously stated. How do we get people to really understand this? Because right now we're doing the opposite. We're normalizing yeah. this reality. Well. Well, first of all, great comments, Chris. And and there's a lot there. And yes, nature wants us to be fat, but not really. Nature wants us to be in balance with nature. And in a natural world, we wouldn't be fat because the things that make it easy for us to get fat are basically interacting with a world where it's hard to get fat because physical activity is routine. Calories are relatively hard to get. Yeah, We're essentially adapted to a world where Calories are relatively scarce and hard to get. Work is involved and physical activity is unavoidable. It requires neither gym membership nor specialized footwear. It's called survival and everybody does it every day. <laughs> and then we have contrived a modern world where physical activity is scarce and hard to get and calories are unavoidable and Houston, we have a problem. But yeah, I, I totally agree with that point. And our genes haven't changed in the last hundred years. So the genes are the genes we've always had for the most part. But absolutely, I mean, they're, they're genes that were adapted to protect us against starvation, which was the real menace, and not to protect us against obesity because that was very unlikely to happen. We've just we've flipped everything around. Absolutely true. And then, yeah, I mean, you, you commented about you know the, the the essential anorexia in models. There, there are certain women athletes who are prone to that, and and of course, yes, they are prone then to amenorrhea, lost to the menstrual cycle, which is a defense mechanism. You, you certainly should not get pregnant when you don't have enough calories to support your own body fat, because now you need to support, you know, the, the, an in utero additional life and you can't do that. But there's more to it because when amenorrhea occurs in, in young women, they lose bone density and, and some of that bone density loss, of course, is irrecoverable. So, you know, underweight in young women, girls, adolescents, um, you know, potentially lifelong consequences of that. So absolutely we need to take that seriously. But with regard to overweight, we are normalizing it in our society. One of the other pieces I wrote for childhood obesity, um, so the Liebert publication you quoted at the start, was on a, a coin term of mine, uh, oblivobesity, uh, because there, there, I was commenting on research showing that most parents whose kids were overweight or obese thought other kids were overweight or obese, but not their own children. You know, basically they were overlooking the obesity in their own home because it was everywhere. And, you know, essentially you wind up comparing the weight of your kids to the weight of kids around and the mean is rising and you see kids even heavier than yours. And you think, yeah, it's probably okay. And, and, you know, it, none of us wants to have a problem we need to confront at home. So if you, if you can explain it away, <laughs> that, that tends to be something we do. So oblivobesity, we, we're, we're overlooking it, but it, it's a serious problem. I I've been drawn into debates many times over the years with the love the skin you're in crowd, the okay at any size. And I totally sympathize. So, so we have to unbundle something really important here. First, 
there is a massive unreasonable stigma attached to obesity in our society. It's absurd. For that, I've, I've used the metaphor of polar bears in the Sahara. If polar bears are in the Sahara desert and overheating, you know, you could blame the bears, but obviously it's a much bigger problem than that. They're adapted to the cold of the Arctic. If the cold of the Arctic goes away and gets replaced by the heat of the Sahara, they cannot thrive because they're maladapted. We have epidemic obesity. We have pandemic obesity, adults and children alike. This is not an issue of personal responsibility having gone away. This is not an issue of you know, people losing self-control generation by generation. This is a byproduct of people living in a totally different world for which we have no protective adaptations. There, there are no human adaptations to protect against caloric excess or the lower of the couch. And we've made those constant exposures. So obesity is the norm. It's not so much that nature wants us to be fat, but modernity, modern living absolutely makes obesity the path of least resistance. And a majority of us are overweight or obese. 70% of adults in the United States are at least overweight and a rapidly rising proportion of kids. So extremely easy for that to happen and consequently relatively easy to overlook. And yet, despite how prevalent it is, there's still a stigma attached. We've we managed to blame the victims of this massive culture-wide problem. Absurd. Has to stop. And so I'm totally on the side of the okay at any size people who are saying the stigma needs to go away. But it's not okay for 10-year-olds to have type 2 diabetes. It's not okay for 10, 11, 12-year-olds to have fatty infiltration of the liver and to have liver failure or liver dysfunction as a result of it. It's not okay for 30 and 40 somethings to consider coronary disease a rite of passage. It's not okay for somewhere between one in three and one in two American adults to be destined for diabetes on our current trajectory, all driven by epidemic obesity. That's not okay. It's not okay to siphon years from life and life from years because there's junk where food ought to be and a couch where movement ought to be. And we have obesity as a pathway variable driving elevated rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, dementia, disabling arthritis, and a host of other things as well. That's not okay. And that's the reality. Obesity is a canary in the coal mine of chronic disease. Where you have obesity, you will have more heart disease. You will have more diabetes. You will have more dementia. You will have more cancer. We know this incontrovertibly, and that's not okay. That basically is robbing people of what they deserve, a bounty of years in life, a bounty of life in years. It is stealing that away. That's not okay. So, you know, how do we confront this is what you asked. I, I think with, with that honesty that I care about any, you know, as a physician, you, you talk about the fact it's my job to help protect your health. You decide what to do with the advice I give you, but I need to help you recognize and empower you to address anything that's a threat to your health or the health of your child. And I'm concerned about the effect your weight is going to have on your health or on your child. Let's talk about what we can do about it. This is not judgment any more than your blood pressure is elevated. I'm obligated to tell you that. That's my job. Your, your cholesterol is elevated. Uh, you know, some other biomarker is out of whack. I, I, I mean, your temperature is too high. It's too low. I mean, it's my job to measure these things and tell you whether they're where they ought to be or not. And if they're, if they're out of range, it's a health threat. And it's my job to help defend you against those threats. Obesity is a health threat. 
there, there, there are variations. You know, you, there are some people who store body fat in places that are safer than others. Uh, those who most accumulate excess body fat around the middle are most subject to infiltration of vital organs like the liver by fat, most subject to insulin resistance and the metabolic harms. Some people are less so. And, you know, we, we can acknowledge all of that, right? So it's, it's not one fixed weight is the same exact health risk for everybody. But other things being equal, an excess of adipose tissue, which is what prevails, is associated with a vast array of extremely serious health threats that will make your life less good and less long. And as a health professional, I am duty bound to care about that and to disclose that to you without judgment and to talk about how we can address it constructively together. And I think that's the key there, the non-judgment, the constructive decision, the holding hands together on the journey of life that is aiming to not leave us in a state of disease so that when we depart this earth, it was 20 years of drugs and hooked up to this, that, and the other as we leave it. I, I completely agree. So I know I had David Allison on on the show a while ago, and he is a staunch advocate for RCT trials and trying to figure out nutrition science, which great if we can get them, but it's so difficult to get some of these. We need to also look at observational and, and population-based studies. No, you are in both camps. You think that RCTs are great, but in the absence of an RCT to answer the question, let's look at what's really happening in society. I know Ansel Keys sent out some data years ago that sent us on a blind path to, to nowhere. Frankly, I think it was one of the greatest dis, uh, disenfranchisement, if that's the right word to use, of the human condition in the United States is by saying, hey, fat's bad. Let's load everything up with everything but fat. And the only way to get that to survive is salt and sugar which salt and sugar then unfortunately fed the paradigm of what Dr. Johnson's talking about how nature wants us to be fat. And again, I want to caveat that statement because when he said it, he didn't truly mean nature wanted us to be fat. He said right. nature's goal is to help us survive famine. So it'll exactly. help us gain fat during periods of time where there's fruit on the ground, whatever. Right. So talk about that reality because we live in a world now where the modern media will grab on a headline and say, X is this. It's multivitamins are useless. And, right. and, I go, I go a little bit like to your point, I get a little bit soapboxy, nutty, go crazy when this stuff happens. So what are we doing? All right. Well, again, you, you're, you're setting me up with this, this packed agenda. So a lot of stuff. David Allison's a great guy. He's a friend. And yes, uh, I've, I've conducted and published many RCTs. I have great respect, uh, written textbooks on research methods. Uh, but I, I would quickly point out that most of what humans know that is most important to getting through the day or doing any of the things we do, like raising our children, we do not know from RCTs. You find me the RCT that says it's a bad idea for kids to run with scissors. Never found one. And yet I'm really convinced it is. Or show me the meta-analysis about the importance of looking both ways before crossing a busy street. I've never found one. Or that it's unwise to put your hand in a fire, right? I mean, there's just so much stuff we know from the consistency of patterns we observe. So I, I think there is a hubris in science that you know we, we've now elevated the standard of evidence to, to be the randomized controlled trial, and it's the only way humans know things, and that's just nonsense. Again, you think about it, think about your daily life and all the things you take for granted, knowledge that you rely on every day, how much of it is just the consistency of patterns. You know that things are gonna happen the way they happen because they've always happened that way. That's entirely reliable. So RCTs have their place and they can answer certain questions. 
but there's there's there is no question that we can populate our understanding of the world and our understanding of nutrition from multiple sources. This is something on which colleagues and I have done some scholarly work. We actually published a research paper on the appropriate way to synthesize evidence when what you're interested in is effects across the lifespan. Because let's face it, you know, who would be willing to be randomly assigned at birth to be vegan or paleo or keto <laughs> and followed for 80 years? And even if anybody were that crazy, you know, the researchers would die before the study ever gets done. So you'd need an intergenerational group of investigators. Yeah, I mean, it's just the cost, the size, the complexity, preposterous. But these are the things we want to know. We don't, we, I don't simply want to know what diet best lowers a given biomarker in six weeks. Ultimately, as a lifestyle medicine specialist, I want to know what dietary patterns are conducive to longevity and vitality. Years in life, life and years, that's the real prize. You can't get that information from an RCT. So you need RCTs to refine your understanding of attribution. Did X really cause Y? They're great for that in the shorter term. But then you need observational studies to tell you about the longer term and intergenerational effects, and epigenetic effects, and on and on it goes. So there is no one single source of understanding. And frankly, we need science to populate the gaps that are left by sense. But science does not obviate the importance of sense. A lot of what we know about how the world works and a lot of what gets us through every day and what enables us to raise children and keep them alive um, is sense. It's not RCTs. It's not meta-analyses. It's running with scissors just intrinsically seems like a really bad thing to do. I'm, I'm going to go with that. And we are going to look both ways before crossing busy streets. You finally said one thing, Chris, that I disagree with. And, and that's the legacy of Ansel Keys because Ansel Keys work got hijacked. So Keys, we actually, uh, we did a project. Um, this was a very arduous project some years back at the True Health Initiative, where we dug into the 60-year-old research papers of the seven countries study right. and actually interviewed Keys co-investigators from around the world, many of whom are still living. The seven countries, I, I consider the seven countries study one of the most outstanding examples of high quality nutritional epidemiology you're ever going to find. I mean, you know, they, they, they went to lengths rarely replicated, you know, actually weighing and measuring food intake. And, and Keyes, what, what Keyes really did, you know, it's sort of his seminal find, I don't want to bog down in this, but at that time, this was in the 1940s, they didn't know whether heart disease was an inevitable consequence of aging or whether variations in lifestyle made a difference. They really, they just didn't know that. That was the question. And Keyes had the impression that there were higher and lower rates of heart disease in different countries with different lifestyle patterns. And he thought diet had something to do with it. Nobody knew that at the time. And ultimately, what he found was that diets that had a very high saturated fat con content were consistently associated with higher levels of heart disease. Now, was it the saturated fat? Was it the foods delivering the saturated fat? All of that could be subject to debate. But the fundamental advance was, yes, there are marked variations in heart disease among people who are genetically not that different. This appears to be lifestyle related. Dietary pattern appears to be important. Saturated fat appears to be important. Keyes did not advocate for wholesale reduction in fat. That, that, whole, that, that happened culturally. We basically, as we always do, we play a game of telephone, right? We get an intact message at the start. We pass it along enough times until it becomes gibberish. That's what happened. Keyes himself, who lived to be 102 years old, by the way, lived on a Mediterranean diet. He did not have a, hot, uh, did not have a low fat diet personally. 
he did have a low saturated fat diet. He, he ate a lot of a Mediterranean diet. So, it, you know, a lot of the fat was olive oil, uh, but nuts and seeds and avocados and, and fish and seafood, not a lot of other animal food, lots of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, um, legumes, beans and nuts. Uh, so the usual stuff. So I, I don't think it was Key's fault, but we've seen the same thing happen over and over again where, you know, there may be some useful insight. This is where you landed. So what's going on? Well, what, what's going on is, you know, we, we live in a world where our news cycles have gotten ever tighter and where everybody has a megaphone, the Internet. And so almost instantaneously, you get the notion that some new study has changed everything, which, by the way, it almost never does. You get a massive opinion. Everybody who owned the opinion already that is supported by that study jumps on to tell you why it's right. Everybody who owned the opposing opinion jumps in to tell you why it's wrong. So we get division, we get polarization, we get amplification, we get incredible distortion. And also playing into all this, I, I actually worked on air for two and a half years for Good Morning America, uh, covering health issues in general, but in particular nutrition. And one of the reasons my gig didn't go longer than two and a half years is I wanted to tell the truth, even if it was the same week after week, <laughs> you know, like fruits and vegetables are still good for you this week. And they wanted me to talk about a different diet every week, right? I mean, you know, so what is some nincompoop in Hollywood doing this week to lose 27 pounds in 18 minutes? All potatoes. And so, yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the media is interested in attracting our attention and, you can do that more effectively with titillation, with uh, provocation, with distortion than by, you know, essentially conveying fundamental truths over and over again. So there, there really isn't any interest in educating us. And, you know, I think the, the single biggest news about diet and health is that there is no news about diet and health. You think of the world's blue zones. Right, those five places around the world where people most consistently live to be 100 or more are generally free of chronic disease, don't get dementia. They have intact vitality of both body and mind until they're 102 and then, you know, go to sleep one night and just don't wake up the next morning. It's a beautiful thing. So they live long, prosper with vitality and go gentle into that good night in the fullness of time. Are they watching the morning shows to know what to eat? You know, are they, are they interested in what Gwyneth Paltrow is having for dinner? No, I mean, they, they eat the way their parents ate and they ate the way their parents ate and they ate the way their parents ate. It's just the cultural norm in Ikaria, Greece, in Sardinia, Italy, in Okinawa, Japan, in Loma Linda, California, among the Seventh-day Adventists and on the Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica, the five blue zones, uh, famously written about by Dan Buettner. And that's important. There really is no news about diet and health that we need, but we're constantly tuning in. And, and to, you know, to try and generate enough buzz so that it rises to the level that attracts communal attention, these things are massively distorted and amplified. It, it's just, it, it's fundamentally wrong that any one study about nutrition, however important, is going to undo everything we knew up until this morning. Right. Science, every now and then we have some massive epiphany and, and, you know, we rethink a whole field, extremely rare. By and large, science is an incremental build. So, yeah. you know, the hard won knowledge that got us to today isn't going away tomorrow. We may need to adapt it. If something really provocative comes along and we think, okay, we were a little bit wrong, we make an adjustment. Sure, that's fine. If science is humble, it ought to be. 
really important point about the pandemic what we may want to get into because I you know I think we sort of lost our way there but yeah I mean science doesn't profess to have absolute knowledge of everything it's a learning process it's a method to learn what you don't know so you're always willing to say okay I know more today than yesterday but you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater you don't say I learned a little more today so everything we knew up until today was wrong absolutely untrue so you know you really have to I think, defend yourself against that notion. And if you follow health news or diet nutrition news, caveat emptor, you, you, you really, you want to listen to it and think, okay, so what can I actually learn from this? Does this add to what I knew? But the one thing I'm not going to do is pretend like, you know, everybody before now was an idiot. <laughs> and and right. there is some new nutrition messiah to listen to today, knowing that I'll do the same thing next week when this guy gets replaced by that girl who knows everything he didn't know. You know, it's just silly. Uh, we, we've wasted so much time and opportunity to improve the human condition by going round and around and around that same silly circle. Right. And I think it also feeds the American belief that we can undo our behavioral choices through a new special method i.e i'm gonna eat really garbage food but i'll take these supplements that'll make up for the fact that i'm eating really garbage food i think that's something that the american populace unfortunately tends to head towards too often i.e you know i can take more insulin i'll just eat more junk food then my diabetes will be fine yeah well it doesn't sort of work that way so let's segue a little bit here because i you gave the you, you kicked the door open a tiny little bit i want to push it open now so you wrote a piece in American Journal for Health Promotion in 2022 this year, The Financial Case for Food is Medicine, Introduction of an ROI Calculator. I think the reality of COVID has shed a unbelievable spotlight on the fact that the cost of this pandemic in America was so high, primarily because of the lifestyle factors that induce inflammation in the body that then allowed the COVID SARS-2 virus infection to then hijack the deaths of all these people. That's not being talked about anywhere in the in the the popular press. We talk about masking, social distancing, vaccination, all of which are valid, but nobody's talking about the upstream risks of what you can do to mitigate risk moving forward. Let's say this virus is with us forever, which it looks like it may be. I'm not going to take the chance when I'm in my advanced ages that my physiology is going to allow me to be hijacked by the virus. Why do we not see this out there? And then speak to the ROI on this, because I think you've really hit something there. Cost is big. Yeah, no, I'll circle back to the ROI calculator. But yes, I, from very early in the pandemic, and, and I, I kind of got sucked into a vortex unintentionally because I, I wrote what I thought was just fundamentally reasonable stuff in the New York Times in an op-ed very early on. In the pandemic, I, I wound up at the, sort of the center of a, a vast swirling storm of controversy. But really what I was saying is there's more than one way for a pandemic to hurt people. The, the virus can infect people and hurt them. But the things we do to prevent people and virus coming together can disrupt society, supply chains, livelihoods, the economy, and that can hurt people too. And we need to care about both. So my primary message at the start was the the policy objective should be total harm minimization. And that means we, we need to look at all the ways people can get hurt and minimize it. It's hard to see the controversy really when you step back. And then my second main point was we have been mired in pandemics long before now, pandemic obesity, pandemic diabetes, pandemic heart disease. And what we're seeing, and, and this, this was really early 
insight with regard to the pandemic. We, we were seeing this out of Wuhan. We were seeing it more out of Korea, and we saw it tremendously clearly out of Lombardy, Italy. Those, if, if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, when we first started hearing about SARS-CoV-2, you know, we first heard about Wuhan. Then there was a big epidemiologic study in Seoul, Korea, where it went next. And we heard a lot about who was getting very sick and who was getting mildly sick. And then, of course, it overtook Lombardy, Italy, and there was a, a, a concentrated mortality toll there. But the people who were getting really sick and dying were people who were old, which we can't do very much about, and people who were chronically ill, which we can do a lot about. So before the virus ever even got here, I was talking about the fact that, look, this is the perfect time for us to have a let's get healthy together campaign because the pandemic that we've been ignoring, and, and you, you referenced earlier in this conversation, Chris, the fact that things that happen slowly, we tend to overlook, right? So obesity, diabetes, you know, it's not, it, the food you eat today is not gonna make you fat today or diabetic today, it builds up over time we're oblivious to that, that's because of adaptation. You know, the threats we're adapted to, the threats our adrenal glands respond to, the fight or flight response are, you know, tooth and claw. I mean, if it's coming at you immediately, you recognize the threat. If it's a threat that builds up over months or years or decades, we tend to be somewhat blind to it and that's intrinsic to our nervous system. So we were already mired in pandemics. Poor food quality, poor diet quality kills over 500,000 Americans prematurely every year. Let me say that again. And, and by the way, this was an op-ed in the New York Times, August 26, 2019, Darius Mozafarian, Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture of the United States. Our food is killing too many of us. That was the title. And they cite the Global Burden of Disease Study, poor diet quality, not hunger, not lack of food, but junk where food ought to be kills 500,000 Americans prematurely every year. When COVID took us past the 500,000 mark, we had a national moment of reflection and mourning and silence. And Well, food takes us past that same threshold every year and has for as long as anybody can remember. And it's, you know, business as usual. Welcome to breakfast in America. We just ignore it systematically. That's an outrage. So I'm back to where I started. Where is the outrage? So I was pointing out, you know, A, we are massively more vulnerable to the toll of this virus because we're coming into this thing sick. We had a pandemic already of chronic disease, cardiometabolic disease. We've been ignoring it. And B, the scare of this acute infectious threat is a teachable moment. Maybe there's never been a better time for us to roll out national campaigns and community campaigns and faith-based campaigns and employer-mediated campaigns. I don't care, you know, everybody, everywhere, let's get healthy together. There's never been a better time. Say, let's do something about all this obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cardiometabolic aberrations, because if we do, we will come through the pandemic with a much lesser toll. And we now know that to be true. There was a paper in the Journal of the American Heart Association using sophisticated computer modeling after we were well into the COVID pandemic, estimating that hospitalization and mortality rate in the United States could have been 60% less, so more than cut in half, if we had not done anything different about SARS-CoV-2, but simply done what we already knew how to do with regard to ameliorating cardiometabolic risk factors. We never did. Even now, this is not caught on. It, it's incredible to me. And then you started with the cost. So, you know, the, the economic costs of this are uh, frankly incalculable to me. You need a better economist than I am to tally this. <laughs> but what I do, my day job these days, uh, I run a, a SaaS company, a digital 
lifestyle medicine company called Diet ID, we, we've developed and patented a whole new way to assess diet. We think diet quality should be a vital sign. You know, again, poor diet quality kills over 500,000 Americans rather prematurely every year. It's the single leading predictor variable for premature death and chronic disease. So, you know, we manage what we measure. We think this should be measured in everybody. Because we have this capability, we connected the dots. We said, okay, we can measure change in objectively measured diet quality effortlessly at scale. When diet quality changes, we know how that translates into changes in biomarkers. We know how it changes into incident and prevalent chronic disease. And we know the average annual per capita costs of obesity versus not, hypertension versus not, type two diabetes versus not, coronary disease versus not, they're huge. And so what we're able to show with this ROI calculator that we built is improve objectively measured diet quality this much, and you can extrapolate massive savings measured, not just in human terms, which have always mattered most to me, but in dollars. And, and their savings come fast and they grow quickly and that then becomes a really strong argument for investing in food as medicine because it pays you back. It pays you back many times over. And we could have done that in the pandemic. We could have saved lives and we could have saved, I don't know how much money, but very large sums if we had jumped on the opportunity early to say, hey, look, you guys are suddenly all concerned about vulnerability. Everybody's scared. The single best defense we have against this virus is fortifying our overall health. And there are all kinds of ways we can do this together. I had all sorts of fantasies. And, and, you know, when we had, when finally the vaccines came out, I thought, well, we should be sending mobile units into underserved communities and make the vaccine available, but also hand out fruits and vegetables, give people masks if they need them, do, you know, with social distancing, do aerobics classes in the street, have a dance right. class. I mean, there are there all sorts of things we could have done. Say, we can fully exploit this teachable moment and really convert our culture so we understand the importance of health, not just as a long-term proposition, but, you know, back to that issue of we, we tend to be aware of threats that come fast. Well, SARS-CoV-2 came fast. That's what made it different. So we were afraid, which meant we were paying attention. And if you said, you know, by improving your, your diet today, you can reduce your vulnerability to SARS-CoV-2 today. And, 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 and by the way, the value proposition of eating well, being active, I think people think, you know, it's very delayed gratification. Not true. So just two final quick comments here, Chris. We have measures that, that show important physiologic changes that can be captured in minutes to hours after a single meal or a single bout of exercise. And, and the two that I have in mind, one is endothelial function, which basically is the master regulator of the, the, the vasculature. And it changes with a single meal. And it's really, really important to blood flow, which in turn is really important to immune system function. So a single high quality meal versus a single junk food meal, you have a significant alteration in your endothelial function, which means your immunity is different that day. And similarly, with walking versus spending time on the couch, you change blood flow, yes. But the other thing that's observed is studies after exercise show enhanced chemotaxis, which is basically studies of the way white blood cells behave in response to a stimulus. So you have more effective white blood cells, your, your army within to defend against things like SARS-CoV-2. It functions more efficiently in the immediate aftermath of exercise versus being sedentary. So immediate benefits. So we could have started to immunize ourselves against this virus long before we had vaccines because the single 
best vaccine against all threats is robust native health. Yeah, and I, and I was about to just hit on three points. You just nailed the, the one of the three is that it's not just SARS-CoV-2 that this matters for. This matters for every future Everything. pandemic, future issue we run into. This is the methodology to immune solvency, which then reduces risk of acute disease at the moment. But not only acute disease, one of the big things coming out of SARS-CoV-2 now is autoimmunity post-disease. In those folks who get sick enough to get hospitals and then not die, they're now at secondary risks of big problems and long COVID and uh, ad nauseum and the healthcare dollars, the ROI is going to be massive there too. I want to applaud you, you know, for taking the risk to write what you wrote. Cause I, I actually copied your, your New York times piece word for word and published it in my newsletter with, with citation to you. Cause it was so powerful at the time. I think it was what April of 2020. Um, it was, you know, you were saying what I was screaming for people to say and I applaud you for doing it because I know it was not popular, but that's what people needed to hear. And frankly, they still need to hear. It. And I think you should publish it again because it hasn't changed. That fundamental reality is still the same. And the people that don't like us to say it too bad, because this is to your point, where is the moral outrage, right? Where, where are people not outraged by what is happening? You know, the whole issue around, you know, if we're not taking care of ourselves, even the, the fundamentals of vaccination aren't as good. Your microbiome's not as healthy, therefore you won't respond to the vaccine as well. So one right. layer of protection's weakened. I mean, this goes on and on and on and on and on, and it's just such a nightmare. So again, kudos to you for having the bully pulpit and taking the time to write the articles so that people can read it. Frankly, you did the work that I wished we could see more people doing. Well, well, thank you. And and to be clear, I'm not a radical, and and I, you know, I wasn't trying to 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 be a rabble rouser. I, I really was just trying to speak sense. You know, I, I think we want to protect everybody as best we can. Total harm minimization. I think we need to, you know, if you you're engaging in some great enterprise, whether you're running a business, you're going to university, you're there, there needs to be some, you're, you're on a team, you're on a football team, a soccer team, you're a professional athlete. There's an objective. What, what are we trying to do here? Nobody ever told us that with regard to the pandemic. We're locking down, we're liberating. What is the goal? I mean, you know, is it, is it total separation of people and virus? Are we trying to save the maximal number of lives? Or are we only trying to save people from SARS-CoV-2? We don't care what else kills them. I mean, tell us. Nobody yeah. ever said it. And, you know, to me, it just seemed absolutely silly to have all this effort directed at we didn't know what we didn't know what would follow you know if we lock down for how long if we flatten the curve what happens when we stop we never got any of that and we could have we, we certainly had the wherewithal to convene all the right experts but you know sadly the, the whole situation was contaminated because of uh, the political quagmire we were in right i mean we, we had a strong element of anti-science and you know i i think people are far more subject to Newton's laws than we like to think. I mean, you know, Newton was talking about blocks of flotsam in space, but I think people too are prone to equal and opposite reactions. So the scientific community and, and entities I've respected my whole career, like CDC, and I've worked with CDC throughout my career, and I've always respected them, but it, they became incredibly dug in. And I think the idea was, you know, if we hear anti-science, we have to pretend the science is so much more sacrosanct than it actually is to defend our position. And so everybody gravitated to the poles of silliness. So, you know, one of the dangerous narratives throughout the pandemic has been follow the science, where we really had no science. 
Now, right. we, we, we didn't know what mRNA vaccines would really do. They were brand new, never been tried before. So, yes, okay, we've got something that's really great. It's important. It's a defense. We didn't know much about, you know, the specific circumstances under which masking provided maximal utility. What is the degree of risk reduction for whom? Uh, I mean, there was so much we didn't know. We continue to hear follow the science this far into the pandemic in areas where we now know there are gaping holes in the science and people are right. basically just following a given narrative. I, I don't think anybody had malicious intent there, but I, I think it was Newtonian. I think we had you know, essentially dangerous action in one direction. And instead of getting sense in response to that, we got dangerously extreme opposing reaction. And I did what I tend to do, which is look at that and say, you know, there's a middle path here where, yes, we ought to leverage the science we have, but we shouldn't pretend we have more science than we do. We need some sense. We need to acknowledge that, you know, that this this is a very complex scenario where the virus is the greatest threat to some. But what we're doing to livelihoods is a greater threat for others. And, and we've seen that play out. We've seen a significant rise in uh drug addiction and overdoses. We were, you know, we were just exiting the critical opioid crisis. We're just starting to improve it when COVID hit and it made it massively worse. And, right. you know, so there, there are also, and, and then, you know, we also major disruptions in people seeking care for all the conditions that were here all along. So delays in cancer diagnosis, huge toll attached to that, delays in treatment for heart disease. Very early in the pandemic, I, I volunteered on the front lines in New York City during the surge. And one of the more graphic things that I experienced in the ER in the Bronx was a 42-year-old brought in dead on arrival. And I think, you know, had this been any time other than the pandemic, he, he would have been resuscitated. But he's somebody who didn't want to have anything to do with it. We kind of got the story from his family later. He'd been having chest pain and said, well, I'm, last place I want to go is to a doctor or a hospital now with all this virus around. So basically just waited, waited, waited until he had a massive heart attack and was gone. And I was hearing stories from colleagues that, yeah, we're seeing a lot more people brought in, young people. We can't resuscitate because they waited longer than they ever waited before. You know, all of that. Well, those lives count, too. So... Yeah. Again, there, sh there could have been a much better course through this pandemic and one where we listened to one another, understood one another's points of view, respected the limits of the science. And I think by respecting the limits of the science and being humble about it, we would have had much greater respect for the science we did have. But that hand was overplayed. And I, you know, I, sadly, I've never seen less respect. And I do understand that sentiment yeah. for you know, the, the very entities that are supposed to be in the vanguard of, of public health. So a lot of damage has been done. We've, we've got a lot of cleaning up to do. Right, I agree. And in our world, unfortunately, the public health nightmare that we're seeing now is a reduction in vaccination of tried and true vaccines that have been around for exactly. a long time. I mean, you're right, right there up in the Northeast where now there's a case of polio and there's potentially gonna be a big upswing in, in otherwise previously completely preventable diseases in this country. All again, to your point, you had a centrist view, which I found completely normal to be considered even remotely radical is it, it to me it's a se it's a segment of insanity in our system right now that you're putting out reasonable thought processes about let's look at the whole construct of the human society not just this one view and it was considered a, you know polarizing which again is to, is to uh, to a Ugh, it's to a fault of mess so a couple a couple <laughs> well, more questions true. then i want to be conscious of your time you know, you're still in academia, um, highly respected. 
are we finally getting to a point where nutrition is a teachable part of the understanding in medical school? You know, I went to Emory University Medical School and it was, you know, considered one of the better schools in the country. And we had 16 hours of nutrition education in the whole four year time I was there. I knew nothing. I go out, I marry a woman who happens to be an RD. And she's asking me questions. I think I know my answers. I know nothing. It, John Snow, I'm like, <laughs> I'm so uneducated. It was pathetic to the point that I had to go to Arizona to do a fellowship in integrative medicine to learn these things. Are we finally tilting that, you know, that scale? Too soon to say. We, and but good timing for the question. We, my company, Diet ID, just sponsored a webinar yesterday on nutrition education and medicine, and we had a fantastic panel. And there are little green shoots and, and there is cause for optimism. Culinary medicine is, is a great advance. So, you know, rather than what we got back in the day, which was nutritional biochemistry, right? I mean, they taught us biochemical pathways, pat us on the head and said, you can go talk to patients about nutrition now. And of course we couldn't, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we knew absolutely nothing of any use to a patient. Right. Whereas now they're teaching medical students how to cook economic, convenient, delicious meals for themselves and saying, pay this for talk to your patients about this. It's actually food. I mean, it really works. So I think that's great. Those are, those are being virtualized. So there's, you know, essentially um, asynchronous opportunities to learn culinary medicine. You can turn on the video at any point, watch the class, make it at home. Um, so that there are more and more studies looking at the efficacy of not just real-time in-person culinary medicine, but virtually delivered. I think that's exciting. And, and many other examples, too. And there are efforts afoot, policy efforts, to elevate the minimal number of hours required for nutrition education. I mean, certainly, everybody knows, it, it, as we talked about, diet quality measured objectively is the single leading predictor variable for premature death and chronic disease in the modern world, full stop. It's not debatable. It's just you know basically ironclad epidemiology at this point. So given that, it certainly reverberates through the house of medicine that nutrition has to be addressed. And if we have to address something, we have to be trained to address it. So there's, there's a lot of momentum. There is, however, a lot of resistance too. My long experience in academic medicine you know, leads me to think the turf wars are pretty extreme. Once you get control over a certain swath of the curriculum, your prestige is attached to that. The importance of your department relative to some other department, you, you're very reluctant to let it go. So I've been thinking for a long time, Chris, you know, that the foundation of the whole construct of modern medical education is 100 years old. It's something called the Flexner Report, which was delivered to Congress in 1920. So we're just over 100 years later. I think we're overdue for, you know, Flexner's heir <laughs> apparent to, to give us some alternative version of that thing. And, you know, I mean, back in the day, I mean, it, it, as far back as the 1920s, I mean, we didn't even know most of the micronutrients. We were still learning vitamins and minerals at that point and what their deficiencies did. But from then through the middle of the 20th century, nutrition was nutrients, you know, and it, it basically, you know, preventing rickets by giving people vitamin D. It's a totally different enterprise in a world that's awash in food excess, junk where food ought to be, obesity, and chronic disease. And so none of that education is relevant. The other thing that's changed that, that you know, I think has vast implications is that you know, back then you needed to learn a, a certain inventory of facts. And then those would tend to change relatively slowly 
and you would keep up with that incremental change. Now, there are far too many facts for anybody to learn, and the pace of information flow is exponentially greater. So what we really need to be taught to do is how to learn and keep up with the flow of information, how to find information when you need to have a stay of breath. So yes, there's a certain foundation in fact, but a lot of what constituted the core of medical education, I think is obsolete. And a lot of what is most critical for the time we're in has no perch in the established curriculum. So the war we're watching play out, I think is largely the evidence-based case for making lifestyle and nutrition much more salient because they're so overwhelmingly relevant to the pathology we see and the resistance of the status quo, which is never inclined to change because it currently holds the hills it wants to retain. Uh, I think we will prevail, but I think it's much slower than we want it to be because that's really what we're trying to overcome. We're trying to overcome the inertia of the system as it has been built for the last century. Yeah. Well, well let's hope. And I hope, and I pray. And I, I love the fact that you're at least one of the thought leaders pushing the right and agenda over time. Um, so final question, didn't prep you for this one on purpose. Um, uh, if you have a golden ticket that you can give to Congress to get one thing changed. And while you're thinking, I'll tell you mine. I think school food should be completely revolutionized. I think there should not be any, place in a school lunchroom for anything other than a whole food. And that's my number one ask. If I had my way in Congress, there would be no more muffins and things that are loaded with sugar and all the other things that are taking our children and and hurting them. What would you ask for? Well, you know, I'm tempted to go with what I currently do and say, you know, diet quality should be a vital sign. We should do what it takes that everybody knows their blood pressure, knows their diet quality. So we're forced to confront that. Uh, so that's an easy answer for me, but I'm actually going to, I'm going to give a, an alternative answer. And that is, I want us as a culture to define obesity and all of its consequences as a form of drowning, because I think that mentality, and I've written about this any number of times, is an invitation to fix everything. And, and I don't want to spend too much time, but just briefly, if we treated drowning in water, the way we treat drowning in junk food hyperpalatable calories and labor-saving technology, we would not teach anybody how to swim. We would not have lifeguards at the beach. We would not put fences around pools. Parents would not encourage one another to be vigilant when their kids are near water. And when there are riptides and sharks, we would put up signs that say, come on in, the water's fine. That's if we were to treat drowning in water the way we treat our food supply. Conversely, if we said, no, we are, are, as a society, we are drowning epidemically in hyperpalatable junk where food ought to be in labor-saving technology, what are the analogs to lifeguards at the beach, fences around pools, parental vigilance when kids are near water, swimming lessons for everybody? And the answers are, we could come up with those. So I think that's simple mentality. This is drowning. And we should respect it the way we respect drowning and have all of the preventive safeguards we have for drowning. And there should be truth in advertising. Step away from this box and nobody will get hurt as opposed to fortify with 11 essential vitamins mineral, and minerals part of a complete breakfast. So I would say that one thing is a complete change in perspective on our relationship to food. And we are drowning in a quagmire of bad food and labor-saving technology and if we built the kind of defenses we deploy 
to minimize the rate of drowning, uh, I think we could systematically improve that problem. And and an overhaul of school food would be one part of that, right? So I, it, it's it's kind of a way to try and get at everything all at once. But I think that's right. how I would spend my golden ticket. I love it. And I hope to give you a golden ticket someday if that ever becomes possible. <laughs> but that being said, I so am grateful for your time. Everything that you are talking about is just warms my heart. If people, I know you have carnival cruise lines full of people following you already, but if other people who are listening to this want to follow David Katz online, on Twitter, on whatever social, uh, where can they find you? I know you have dietid.com, I think it is online. Give us there, give us the outplays where we can find you. Sure, sure. And then Chris, maybe you can post these so so folks can find the link. So yeah, I've got Probably. a website, davidcatsmd.com. It's kind of the 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 home port. Uh, my company, Diet ID, it is indeed dietid.com. We're doing really cool stuff, so check us out. Uh, one thing that I like a lot is my wife has taken all of the recipes we have thrived on as a, as a family over the years and paid them forward. Uh, no cost to this. Go to Quizinicity, like Cuisine City, but with an I in the middle. Quizinicity.com. All the Cats Family Greatest Hits are there. Help yourselves. And she does videos to show you how she makes stuff. It's fun and she's cute as can be. Uh, but, you know, re- really, really great stuff there. Uh, and then finally, my nonprofit, which is all about uh, taking science sense and global expert consensus on these very topics we've been discussing and trying to generate a signal audible above the constant noise. That's truehealthinitiative.org. So those would be the places where you're most likely to find me. And then I'm in social media. So, yeah, I, Twitter, LinkedIn. But my website has all those uh, social media um, profiles. I'll link to everything on the show notes um, when this when this comes out. And again, absolutely grateful for you, your time, your effort. I mean, you are a thought leader in this space. You're, uh, you know, prolifically writing and and just uh, just love all the work you do. So I'm going to give you the final words. Um, anything else you want to say to the audience? And uh, just want to thank you for your time. Well, my my final words are just gratitude, Chris, because you know I appreciate the work you're doing, and you give me an opportunity to be heard that I wouldn't have otherwise. So, both your kind words, but but in particular the opportunity for this conversation, which has been just great. So, thank you very much. All right, David, have a great day. Same to you. So there you have it, a fantastic conversation with Dr. David Katz. Uh, as you can tell, his Mastery of the English language, his ability to portray the difficult conversations around weight gain and the reality that we are struggling with this as a society and as individuals is 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 daunting uh, at best right now with little to no major progress societally. Individuals sometimes are having progress, but as a society in general, we're, we're not, despite the fact that we have lots of information and lots of people like Dr. Katz trying to stem the tide of this problem nationally. And again, for me, I was very frustrated throughout the pandemic with the lack of coverage of the lifestyle factors related to early disease death from COVID, right? And so for me, that's that's a major player in this, the ability to get this information out so that people can make better educated decisions around what they're eating, what they're choosing to put into their body that has feed forward effect on immune health and also on metabolic health, and all of which leads to your ability to have longevity 
in this world. And longevity, I mean, do you stay alive in it? And functionally, that's a major concern right now. And COVID shined a bright spotlight on that. And Dr. Katz is an incredible speaker to the truth of what we really need to be discussing as a society and not talking down to our patients, but talking with our patients, loving our patients, holding their hand while they're going through this really difficult problem. And, and, and we need more people like him out there, you know, on the media airwaves, whether it's social media, whether it's print media, whether it's on the news, talking about the truth, not hiding it, and really going to the root causes of disease, the lifestyle factors that we are all choosing, potentially, each individually, and then society in general, that are dysfunctional for our long-term outcomes. I clearly have a bend towards, I think there are places that the government can be involved and making better decisions from, i.e. subsidizing certain foods that are more nutritious for us, changing school lunch programs, increasing green spaces, places for people to exercise. I mean, just there's a whole cadre of things the government could help with. Private industry could certainly do this, but ultimately it comes down to the individual and our grassroots efforts to say no more. We want a better existence. We want to live better. We want to achieve a higher version of ourselves in our bodies and also in our minds. And that doesn't happen unless you feed the mind and you feed the body appropriately. And as you heard over this conversation, there is no better teacher than Dr. Katz. He has studied this, read it, written it. I mean, every level of this has been understood from a high-level perspective that he's able to bring down to a um easily distributable information stream that we can take and utilize as patients and as providers of care. So with that, have a great day, y'all. As always, hug those kids. We love you. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for the educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.